is Christine Maxfield, and you're listening to When in Rome from Compass Magazine. To say that my next guest has a personality that's larger than life would be an understatement. Likewise, if I were to say that she's a successful travel writer, that would be putting it mildly as well. Annalisa Sorensen has had a colorful and fascinating life with a full career to match, and she's always such a sweetheart to divulge her words of wisdom to her fans, including me. Annalisa, I am so excited to be sitting down with you because you are so fascinating in the travel world. I just, I, if you'll indulge me, I have to talk about your resume just a little bit. You're a writer and reporter for 30 plus national websites, <laughs> magazines, guidebooks. You have hosted a weekly travel and food segment for NBC New York nonstop TV. You regularly appear as a travel expert on, you know, Everywhere, CNN, ABC Radio, MTV Networks, it, it goes on and on. So, with all that said, yes. <laughs> what an introduction! Yes, yes. Okay, I have to hear. I know you have a fabulous background, and probably how you got into travel in the first place. Can you talk to me about your family a little bit? Yes, I would love to. <laughs> and it's funny because often the question that I'm asked is how. Did I get into travel writing? Yeah. And I like to say, how would I not have? Because right. basically it feels like it's travels in my blood. Yeah. <laughs> I was born in Germany. Uh-huh. And then my father is from Denmark, from Jutland, from the main island of Denmark, born and raised there. And then my mother is from Barcelona, Catalana. Okay. So my nine aunts and uncles live in and around Barcelona. Huh. And so my father actually is a doctor in tropical medicine, so malaria and dengue fever. And they decided that they were going to travel the world with all of us. So I actually grew up in, born in Frankfurt, but then grew up in North Africa and Southeast Asia. Did not step foot in the U.S. until I was 13. So <laughs> 14, you, actually. So you came back with a, you know, you have this lovely accent, you know, and you, people are like, where are you from? What planet did you land from? And yeah. I often like to say, too, it wasn't even so much sort of a culture shock. It was yeah. just, it was like planetary shock. I mean, yeah. it felt like it was a very different world. And my parents also, I mean, I feel like they, they approach travel, which is the same way that I do now. So my mm. brother was given a very Arabic name because he was born on the Nile River in Cairo. Oh, wow. And so his name is Tariq, you know? And so huh. the idea is that each of us was named after the country we were born in. Oh, wow. And then throughout our entire time in Africa and Asia, we would always go back to my mother's hometown in Catalonia and my father's hometown in Denmark, both small towns, where we would sort of really connect with our cousins and our family. So it was one of those things huh. where, where, where do I have travel? Well, in my blood, yeah, yeah from the beginning. It feels absolutely. like a very natural, a global existence feels very normal to me. You know? Sure. Yeah. So how did you decide travel writing was then where you were going to hone this? Once we came to the U.S., then I actually went to Berkeley, which is uh-huh. in the Bay Area. And as I like to say, which is a country unto itself. Absolutely. <laughs> so I actually <laughs> felt like, hey, I get this. So yeah. I mean, it was like, if I wasn't to go through a transition process, Berkeley was a great, great place to mm-hmm. do it. You know, with Telegraph Avenue and the tie-dye and sort of this altered nice. universe, you know. <laughs> and then while I was there, my 
first ever travel commission as a travel writer was for the Berkeley Guides, hmm, okay. which was Random House. Yeah. Um, Random House decided that Harvard students wrote Let's Go. So huh. Random House decided to get to come to the Berkeley campus, and they were going to have Berkeley students write the Berkeley Guides. Oh. The idea of being a sort of that aesthetic that Berkeley has, progressive, yeah. underground, all that, was going to be for the Berkeley Guides. So my huh. first ever travel writing commission was for them. They were somewhat short-lived, was the thing about the Berkeley Guides, which is that mm. they launched a lot of titles, mm. but it's very hard to get a foothold. Mm -hmm. So what they ended up doing was a lot of the information in the Berkeley Guides was enveloped into other guides that they had. Okay. Eventually, the series was no longer. Okay. But on that first commission that I ever did, I did Ireland, actually. So that was my okay. first ever sort of paid travel writing experience. Okay. And so then you also have worked with the DK. Right. So then. Eyewitness and Rough Guides. Exactly. Okay. I still co-author Rough Guides. I co-author okay. the Rough Guide to Spain and the Rough Guide to Canada. Mm -hmm. And then also after Berkeley Guides, when I was living in San Francisco, this is kind of one thing that I feel is sort of important, especially when people are trying to break in. I felt like to cover travel you had to do all mediums the idea being radio broadcast mm -hmm. print online yeah so when I was in San Francisco I actually worked for the NBC affiliate there I worked on reporting on sort of travel stories in the Bay Area and I wrote and I produced and I did some on-camera work and so that was when I first got my taste for you know when I cover travel I like this idea that you're doing it from all mediums yeah photography broadcast radio and print mm -hmm. uh, and online well, so that's very important isn't it yeah don't you think I think so yeah, yeah. I, I can't imagine just being print now. I mean, because that's how I started out with magazines. But can you imagine just doing that now? Right. It's just impossible. Completely. And even even on the basic level, like I always like to say, it doesn't even mean that you need to have, you know, a camera crew to do it. Right. It's be a, photo you know, a photographer, right? Yeah. Or as we are doing now. Yeah. Absolutely. A mic, your computer, we're in a lovely little corner with sun coming in, yeah. you know? Now let's talk about guidebooks though. Yes. I mean, we're transitioning. How are you seeing guidebooks continuing? In what format? Are you, yeah, I'm just. Yeah, it is. It's a very interesting time that we're in in media. Completely, uh, yeah. completely, and as you know. Yeah, I think it's very interesting. It's funny. I remember when I was first starting to do the guidebooks, and I, it's interesting. I've actually done sort of all the com competitors. So I've mm -hmm. done Fodor's, Rough Guides, also DK. Mm -hmm. And I remember about 10 years ago, okay, when I was working on the guidebooks and they were going full force and everything yeah. was selling really well, people were saying, oh my God, you know, I mean, guidebooks are going to be gone in the next few years. And they weren't, right? Uh -huh. I mean, here we are. Yeah. And they're still going strong relatively. Yeah. I feel like no matter what, there's going to be that information simply in a different format. Yeah. Ebooks haven't quite gotten to that point yet. Mm -hmm. Guidebooks would have transferred over to the ebook format long ago if it had worked well, and it didn't. And there's various reasons. I think people like the tactile, okay? I think they sure. actually like the tactile. Yeah. I think that there's this sense of discovery when you have your book and sort of a discovering a destination via being able to turn the pages and yeah. finding it. And I also feel that a lot of the online, and you probably agree, there's a lot of listicles, you know, lists are yeah. very popular. Mm -hmm. And there's first-person features, certainly. Mm -hmm. But when you're talking about finding a restaurant on your second 
at night in Burma, mm-hmm. you know, this very nitty gritty necessary bit of info, mm-hmm. then the feature article isn't, you know, it doesn't gonna, apply. Right. Yeah. So I feel like just on that level, because people are still traveling in the way that guidebooks can help them in a big way, I think they're going to continue to exist. I just think that the information may find other avenues. You mentioned the Rough Guide to Spain and to Canada, and so to your point, you have new editions coming out of those two. I mean, if they were gone completely, there wouldn't be new editions coming out, there wouldn't be new guidebook series being launched. Yeah, it'll be interesting. Completely, and I think that, no, that's very much so. Rough Guides is actually a perfect example of Mm -hmm. this because they're still producing the guidebooks. They have streamlined some of their series, okay, Mm -hmm. so they've sort of pulled back on certain destinations, Mm -hmm. and they've put a lot of time and energy into the website, which I'm also writing for. Mm -hmm. I'm working on various feature articles for the website, but they are coexisting at this time. And so that, to me, is the most important thing. Yeah. The guidebook is coexisting with the website. And so I think if the two can balance it out, yeah. then, then I think it can work out well. Agreed. Okay, so let's talk about, you have a new lecture video TV series with an accompanying <laughs> book. <laughs> this is exciting. What is this Travel Transform series? Yes. Oh, <laughs> yes, it's something that I've been thinking about for a while. And I feel like the term, it sounds very grand and esoteric, travel transform. Mm-hmm. So my first thing that I like to do is I like to bring it back down to size. Yeah. Which what I mean is, you know, you don't need to go bungee jumping or eat frog legs or climb to the right. top of the Eiffel Tower. You know, right. I've done them all and I love them very much. <laughs> and they were transformative. Even frog legs? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And certain of those are incredible. But to me, the idea about travel transforming is that it's actually on a very, very basic level. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it can be transformative going and eating a tongue taco on Roosevelt yeah. Avenue, you know, yeah. in Queens. I mean, that can be just as transformative as the bungee jumping. Absolutely. So that's sort of the idea. And the idea is to sort of talk, I'm talking to key people, but not just writers, writers, actors, politicians, huh. anyone, because I feel like everyone travels. So yeah. not just, you know, not just people who like us, it's our craft, yeah. but anyone and talking about what was a transformative travel experience. What was mm-hmm. sort of a seminal travel experience that changed them in some way, whether small, very, mm-hmm. very small or large. But what I found, what, what I think really interesting is that there's a lot of careers out there where you don't realize how much on the road they are. Yeah. And it's just, and they haven't been asked about their travel experiences. Yeah. So musicians are a wonderful example. I have friends who are in various traveling bands, and they they see more than the average travel writer I know. Yeah. You know, and so to me, it's, it's that idea. It's about huh. going out and finding the people who have a lot of travel in their lives, or even actors and actresses who uh-huh. go to travel for to be on set. That's sort of the idea. Oh, I love so I it. will let you know when I've heard my fantastic story yeah. of someone. And then I'm also though going to be tr- doing it sort of as a seminar. Hmm. Because kind of one of the things I was mentioning to you before, I really yeah. like this idea of making it very accessible to all. And so yes. I'm, it, it's going to be kind of an offshoot of the travel writing class that I already do. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to be focusing a little bit more on the, sort of these grander themes, mm-hmm. more about you know travel being a journey within. Yeah. Oh, I love yeah. that. So, yeah. And then the accompanying book, well. Well, <laughs> I'm actually working on two. I'm working on the huh. book that I'm hoping to have accompany the series. Okay. I'm launching it, though, initially as a video series and a seminar. So, I mean, seminar meaning me talking to a group of people about it. Yeah. And then the book, because I think it's a natural connection to it. Sure. I feel like it'll be, you know, a natural part. So, yeah. 
So there we go. Well, then, talking about books as well, you're making a leap from nonfiction to fiction. Right, I know. How is that going? I'm. It's been fascinating. And huh. have you? Have you? No, I done haven't that? done fiction. No, I'm strictly nonfiction right now. That even the idea of this makes me nervous. Yeah. How is? <gasps> I'm so glad you're asking me that, honestly, yeah. because I, and I and I want to hear more about your oh, yeah. fabulous <laughs> writing process because I know that yeah. I've, I've talked to a lot of, as you know, in travel, it's nonfiction largely. Yeah. You know. But and yet, I feel like fiction at its core is all nonfiction, right? When you yeah, really sure. come down to it. Yeah. So, but what was so interesting was I remember feeling that the first time I actually sat down to write the first chapter, which initially it's, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna go for a dream and I'm gonna submit it to the New Yorker as a short story. But the idea being nice. it would be chapter one. You know? Yeah. So I thought when I would sit down that it would just be this. Oh, where does one begin? Because yeah. I mean, fiction means. It just, it just suddenly feels like there's so. It just feels like it would be almost, you know, sort of insurmountable, Agreed. right? Because, you know, yeah. you're not latching it onto a very specific... I'm getting agitated just listening to you. God, no, no. <laughs> but I found two things. I actually took it back from being the novel. I'm at least it's writing yeah, novel. Okay, yeah. took it, changed it to novella. Like, everyone can do a novella That's once, That's a little more right? comfortable to me. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a travel novella, and then I realized, okay, let me actually get it down to, rather than this grand, grand project from the get-go, yeah. I'm going to do, you know, the first chapter. I'm, I have... It hit about the halfway point. Oh, wow. And I would say it's the best writing I've ever done. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Yep. And you know what this means from a writer's perspective. Oh, it's a big deal. Yes. It's huge. How, um, and, and it's one of those things where it's like, okay, this is in my little universe, by the way, that I think it's the best. Meaning I have not shown anyone. So but aren't you the team. most critic, critical? <laughs> like, of I mean, so if you are thinking, I got something here, that is huge. Right. And this may make you feel less anxious, by the mm-hmm. way, because... All the things that I thought would be so anxiety producing, this mm-hmm. idea that it's like, wait a moment, but I'm not basing it on a specific event, which would then kind of give me a sort of a tailored roadmap. Right. In fact, you kind of are, though, you see? Huh. Like, I am, meaning a lot of the writing that I'm doing is always coming back to a personal experience that I yeah. had on some levels. Yeah. So, oddly enough, you kind of still are. Mm-hmm. It's just that you almost have more, it's more liberating because there's huh. this sense where when you want, to sort of get a certain point across or a message, you have more in your arsenal to do so. You know I what I like mean? That. In a way, yeah. Because it's almost like, and it's and, and it's still about a true message, and it's still about authenticity. Yeah. So you have to be, I think, but it, it's almost like you can you can still get an authentic message across. You just have a little more weaponry to do so. You know what I mean? Yeah. In some ways, not to bring up warfare, but you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? There's a million ways to say the same story. Do you just kind of feel your way down this corner in this alleyway? You make a right and a left. Are you just feeling your way that way? Well, I've been reading a lot of other fiction writers and yeah. sort of what are the steps that Their they process. take. Yes. Yeah. And my favorite was one who had said, said I write the last sentence first. I, so I have, I know the beginning and I know the end. And I know more or less the trajectory in the middle. Uh-huh. So the first chapter is, to me, the most difficult thing is establishing or creating a character mm-hmm. who is both charm the reader, but also bewilder them sometimes, but also yeah. challenge them. Someone very nuanced yeah. who could sort of carry the book. And I think yeah. that's probably the most difficult because what happens, of course, is you do look within, right? Yep. And you do sort of find yourself giving them sort of attributes and characters that you may have, you know, versions of. So, yeah, that's, to me, that has been the most difficult thing, is creating this, this huh. multi-layered 
character that I feel can carry the story. Okay, well, now let's talk about you have guidebook voice, you have magazine article voice, you have all right. these voices that are not, I mean, they're yours, but they're also not. How are you able to find your voice now? You've got full reign to do whatever you want. Right. It's a great question. Truly. You're asking <laughs> some really wonderful questions. I think it's, a, it's an excellent point. There's the guidebook writing. Exactly. It's very nitty gritty. Mm-hmm. It's very, there's, you know, it, 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 there's a, it's a construct essentially. You're doing intros, you're doing reviews. Yeah. And then even, I feel like a lot of the writing, even for the New York Times or even for National Geographic Traveler, you know, ultimately you are a small part of a whole. You know? Exactly. And so there's this idea, you know, about macro editing and the editor is doing that and they're going to be changing it, not because it may not be that they like the voice, but simply that it's not fit theirs. Yep. So yeah, absolutely. Exactly. So then to have that total freedom, I feel on some levels though, you still are beholden to an audience. You know, I feel like, you know, the idea is yes, you have true liberation, but the reality is you're still, you're still beholden to an audience in the sense that hmm. you still need to sort of create that authentic. Mm-hmm. experience for the audience. So I feel right. like on some levels, you are still being held to a certain standard. Or you, you know may what as I mean? well just journal write because it would just be for yourself. I mean, you are writing for an audience. Right. Yeah. You know? So Right. And, and even though I think that deep down you don't think about that, I mean, I certainly don't think about it as I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. I feel like in the, in the eventual, you know, ultimately, it's either that or we write just for ourselves. Exactly. Right? Kind of in a vacuum. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I feel like there's there's that side. Hmm. The thing about finding your own voice, though, I think, love that question because it's something that I think that writers, especially when they first start out, are very resistant to, mm-hmm. are nervous. Yeah. Often there's this feeling like, but is my, I mean, is this, I mean, is this, is my voice okay? Like, is this right. worth it? Like, why would someone want to hear my voice? Right. And I say, I feel like the writing process about getting really to your voice, when you get to it, it's the most marvelous. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what I mean? I do. And I feel like often, here's the interesting thing, your voice, your writing voice, and your, you know, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, is your actual voice in real life. Like, you're imagining conversations huh. at a cocktail party. And there's this idea like, oh, well, there's there's that Annalisa, and then there's the Annalisa on the page. And it's like, actually, there's not that huge of a difference. Or there huh. shouldn't be, rather. Otherwise, it, it just feels a little phony? Or yeah. And I also, yeah. Right. And I also feel like I'm getting at the truth, quote-unquote, the, the uh-huh. grand truth. You will more likely get to it authentically yeah if you are allowing yourself to sort of write in the voice that is natural to you and we all have one that's right you know what i mean oh this is beautiful how do you feel with yours do you feel (sighs) oh i'm still trudging through i really am i'm still trying to find what that means my voice what is that because i've been doing magazines for 10 years now and i've never written for except back when i was in high school last time i wrote in my voice was in high school Except what you're saying, like it is still your voice to some extent in magazine articles. Right. But, you know, there's a template, there's a formula when you're writing for magazines and then it's edited and it's just, a lot of times when I see a magazine article at the end, it's like, I see semblances of me, but that's not my, that's not me. Right. 
So it takes me a, a long time, but I'm building up some steam. You are. I am. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I, it's just that like trudging through, like I was talking about, like just kind of grasping in the dark and then I'll get a little glimmer of some, some light and I'm like, yes, that's it. And then I'll lose it again. I'll be like, okay, it's okay. It'll come again. And so I'm just hoping I get that light a little bit more often <laughs> so I can get a flow because this book's going to take me like 10 years if I don't. Totally. Yeah. But you feel, well, that's interesting though, that you do kind of have that light, you know, that you, that yeah, you, that it you're pops up and I'll grab it and yeah. then, and then it'll kind of disappear again and I'll be like, ah. Yeah, I love that. And and you do feel you do and do you find the more you write that your voice becomes clearer to you? That's right. Yeah, okay. So that would be that light I'm talking about more often. Gotcha. And so I'm just hoping that eventually it'll just like remain a bit of a dawn. You'll <laughs> be like <laughs> So let's talk about I mean because you're giving such amazing advice right now about oh. the writing process. Let's talk about your Media Bistro class. So this is something that you've got dates available through this year and into 2014. Right. Yeah. I mean, anytime you want, anyone can look at MediaBistro.com and just search for me, search for Annalisa Sorensen, they'll find it. Mm-hmm. It's a fun class. It's it's an eight-week class. Mm-hmm. It's quite popular because it's travel writing, as yeah. you can imagine. Mm-hmm. So it's basically like we cover, in every single week, we cover a different medium. So we start out with the guidebooks. We do the magazines. We do the onlines. We do personal essays. Photography, because I oh, feel nice. like everyone, yep, I always like to say if you have two eyes, you can be a photographer. Yeah, yeah. I feel like anyone can, and that a lot of us sort of may hold back, but absolutely it's something that's within our power, yeah. you know, especially as travel writers. Yeah. Okay. And then ending with anthologies, which we were talking about, mm-hmm. but this idea about travel anthologies are, you know, an area that people don't look at that often mm-hmm. as a potential, especially yeah. as new writers. I feel like new writers may feel like, oh, I can only do that down the road. And I feel like, you know, no, a beautiful story is a beautiful story. Yeah, agreed. You know? well, yeah, yeah, I like it. And I and I love this idea of connecting with, with people, but as I think I was mentioning to you before, this idea of anyone can do it. Anyone can be a travel writer. There just has to be yeah, the love of travel, the love of observation, yeah. you know, and the love of telling a tale, essentially. I feel like it can yeah. be broken down into that. Yeah. When you meet someone who has an equal love of travel that you do, everything else goes away. Meaning, yep. it's it's this it's this thread that I think people who love to travel all have. Yes, you know what I mean. It's this thread, and also with this love of travel, we're very open to mm-hmm. differences and learning about each other, and not trying to change each other. We observe and we listen and we teach each other, and it's yeah, it's totally just lovely. Totally, yeah, very cool. <laughs> okay, so are you ready for your travelers' ten questions? Yes. All right. <laughs> what travel book makes you want to pack your bags and hop on a plane? It may be because I'm experimenting with fiction, but I love what I call travel stories that masquerade as fiction. So mm-hmm. I love Graham Greene. Oh, yeah. I feel like Graham Greene, even though largely a fiction and a novel writer, did travels throughout his career. And so I think that some of the best sort of fiction that I've been reading, whether it's The Quiet American or The Power yeah. and the Glory, I love it. I love Nabokov as well, and I actually particularly like Lolita because I feel like people think of it in one way, but in fact it's sort of like... It's kind of like a road journey novel. And I love reading women's travel writers. And I often will look at the best women anthologies of best women travel writers Mm -hmm. because I like to check in and see. Yeah. What are the experiences they're having? That kind of a thing. So I love that. Yeah. What destination do you consider a best kept secret that you're willing to tell us? (laughs) I know. Isn't that the plight of all travel writers? (laughs) (laughs) I love... It's so interesting. One, Spain I know very well. Mm -hmm. But the one 
part of Spain that I feel like a lot of American travelers specifically don't often go to is the Canary Islands. Oh, yeah. It's one of those things where you have a lot of the Brits and the Germans will go, but of the Canary Islands, the one that I think most people don't know about, and it's an incredible experience, is La Gomera, huh. which is actually, yeah, it's a lovely island. It's one of the smaller ones of the Canary Islands, but the interior is essentially sort of tangled forest. I mean, it feels oh. like out of a J.R.R. Tolkien yeah. novel, you know? And yet the entire perimeter of the island is ringed with black sand beaches and palm trees. And the beautiful thing about it is that if tourists do go, they're usually they keep to one little spot of the island so it's a place that a lot of people don't realize and don't know about oh that's lovely yeah and i love also the in the spain area my mother's from the interior of catalonia mm -hmm. i feel like most people when they travel to barcelona they see barcelona they see a little bit of the costa brava mm -hmm. they don't go in they don't go inland so yeah. to me inland catalonia which is where you have your real sort of catalan environment in some little villages they don't speak castellano they don't speak yeah. spanish and then also on the northern part of the Costa Brava, right near France, there's Cadaqués. And I feel like people will generally do the Costa Brava at the height of summer when it's like right. you know, miles of oiled bodies, but few right. will go up to Cadaqués, which is a very bohemian you Ooh, know, I style. Like yep, a lot of Dali, because Dali did a lot of his work there, but especially in off season. Yeah. It's a very different feeling. Don't yeah. You think? Yeah, no, I love that. Yeah. Off the beaten path, off season. <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. On, on the island topic, though, the other one that I really love, have you been to Belize? I haven't. No. no. Okay. Of all the keys, most people go to San Pedro, La Isla Bonita. It's actually uh -huh. the one that Madonna sang about. Yeah. So San Pedro is wonderful, and it has you know gorgeous hotels and et cetera, but I love Key Conquer, which is the backpacker key. Okay. And it's one of those things where for $25, you can still get your little beach hut right next to the water. You know, um, oh. As I like to say, because I've talked about Belize to various radio interviewers, but it's, it, it, it's the kind of life where it's like you know three iguanas meeting at a sandy crossroads is the traffic jam. I mean, <laughs> Life is like slow, reggae's the music, you know? I mean, it's a very, it's one of those worlds that you sort of get into and you think, oh, okay. So I feel like that's another best kept secret. Oh, I love that. <laughs> what sight should be seen at least once in a lifetime and why? Have you been to Tikal? You know what? I went to Guatemala and I did not make it to Tikal because I was getting a little road weary. I was oh, working around the world and so... My vacation was not to see anything sometimes. It was just like, I'm going to actually get a private room and sleep. Yeah. <laughs> <Don't. laughs> but now, after being back in the States for a year, I'm like, why did I go to TikTok? Totally. Why I know that feeling when you've been doing right. traveling and then you've suddenly just walked. And then you're a little road weary and you're like, I don't want to talk or see anything right. no. fabulous at all. <laughs> right. Doesn't matter. You're like, no, I don't want to climb it at sunrise. Right. Thank you very much. That doesn't <laughs> even sound lovely <laughs> at all. I want to sleep until 11. And <laughs> but I do have to go back because it's on my list. And maybe it's just a, maybe I did it because it's a reason for me to go back. Yeah, you exactly. Know? And yeah. I just feel like, you know what? I, to me, it was one of, there was so many things. I mean, of course, it's the connection with history. Mm -hmm. But it was, the, and I did do the sunrise trek. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I feel feel like you hear about the Mayan pyramids and you hear about sort of their grandeur and the fact that they yeah. rise up over the canopy, you know, of the, of the jungle. But when you actually are climbing, to me, it was that. It was waking up at 3.30 in the morning, pitch black, stumbling over roots, not quite 
getting what you were going to be seeing until you were actually right on it. Climbing to the top and then truly watching the jungle come alive and watching the other Mayan pyramids in the distance come into focus as the sun was rising. That's nice. And it can be any any Maya pyramid. <laughs> but yeah. I feel like, and especially now that the, you know, the world isn't over. You know what? We're still here. December yeah. 2012 came and went. Yeah. Right? Wasn't it 2012? Yeah, yeah, it was. I woke up the next day going, oh, well, that's good. Right. <laughs> I was like, hey, now I can go do laundry, which I really need to do. Yeah. So, you know. It's going to be put it off, though, just in case. Right. It's captured our imagination, yeah. the calendar and everything. Yeah. And then it's just that. It's that raw sort of physicality of them. Mm-hmm. That I thought was, you know, this is something. But on Things Never to Miss, though, I'm okay. a big fan. When I was doing my NBC show, I was doing backyard travel. Uh-huh. So the whole idea would be all the ways you can travel in your own backyard. Okay. So I feel like, you know, there are the unmissable sites around the world, but I also feel like seeking out the cultural experiences in your own backyard yeah. can be as fulfilling and as unmissable on many levels. Yes. And we don't think that way. I mean, I, I grew up in San Diego, and did I ever go see the whales migrating past? No, until right. I was gone. I'm like, why didn't I do that? Right. It was right there. I could have just driven down the road. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, that's, that's, totally. that's a nice Exactly. Thought. I didn't know you grew up in San Diego. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I'm a California girl by heart. Wow. And then I moved to East Coast when I was 19. Did you So really? I've got this interesting, you know, half my life, half my life, you know. Wow. Yeah. Where did you go to? Did you go to university in California? I did, and it was right in transition. So I moved here when I was 19. My dad was transferring for work. So okay. I just put off college until I got here, and then I went to Penn. So, wow. So, yeah, so all of my, like, foundation is very... California, and then all of my career and <laughs> ambitions is East Coast. So it's like, what? But you know why? In a way, it's kind of good. It, it, don't I you think, think so. it's almost like you have that sort of the the upbringing process yeah. where it's all about California, which I love. Yeah. But then you know when it's kind of like okay. Now let's yeah. start making the money. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a good cover. Oh, you. I love that. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so I know that you love travel and food writing. Yes. What and where was the most memorable meal you've had while traveling? It's funny because I'm now realizing how Central American centric is this all is, but I had some incredible experiences there. The one, so yes, I always like to bring this up. And by the way, my mother did eat bull penis when we were growing really? up. Really? So she actually ate what I love it was. your family. This and it was, it was served in a cup where you actually ate it like a custard. So yes, I know, I know. What are you meaning? Like it was sweet? No, but it, it was served like in a, you know, phallic shaped cup, but you actually oh, dipped course. your. <laughs> and let me tell you, they were robust, those bull penises. But you actually dipped your, your spoon into it. So meaning it was very tender. I know men all over the world are clutching their groin right now. Yeah, they are. About it. To me, big fan, of course, of, of Spanish cuisine, which I can actually make. Oh, nice. <gasps> yes, I make a great tortilla de patatas, which I realize is only five ingredients, but I do them very do well. well. Right. <laughs> but the most memorable meal I ever had was actually in Belize City, so in the capital of Belize. Mm-hmm. And I had gone to Neri's, which is a very local restaurant. They're on my own, solo dining, which I love to do. Mm-hmm. And I had said, you know, bring me something, something from the kitchen. And I was served this platter of this very succulent meat. I mean, it was sort of sliced mm-hmm. a little bit like pork. It was the kind of the color of pork. And it looked excellent. And it had plantains on the side. Mm-hmm. And I ate it, and I thought, oh, it's so interesting. It's... 
the consistency of pork, a little fatty, but it also had a gamey flavor. And I said, and what is this? Uh-huh. And they were like, well, it's rat, actually. No way. Yeah. So it's, I, I didn't know that was a thing. I really didn't. I knew, you know, guinea pig and you know, the cooey right. and all that, but I didn't know rat. So it's right. I mean, it's essentially, it's a nocturnal rat. So it's actually from huh. the Paca family, but it's okay. a full on rat long tail. It actually is usually in the interior of Belize. The smell is so rank that when they actually bring the rat in, they have to, they often have to dunk it into this vat, this sort of vat of lime juice, which actually takes away a lot of the rank odor. Wow. You don't see it in any of the restaurants that are in the Keys, etc. And it's, it's mm-hmm. actually called Gibnut. I mean, in the Creole pronunciation, yeah. it's Gibnut. G-I-B-N-U-T. Huh. Um, but superb. And there was just this delight when they were serving it to me because it's this idea that it's very, very traditional. Yeah. Right, you know? And as I always like to say, you know, having lived in now in New York for a while, eating rat felt like the ultimate revenge. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay, I've seen you on the subway tracks. I'm now eating you. <laughs> You've run over my foot way too many times. <laughs> Walk in the street. I'm oh, man. I, yeah. So it felt like, I'm going to carve into this and enjoy it. <laughs> Is there anything that you won't eat? Anything off limits? Are you vegetarian, by the way? I am, but that doesn't apply when I'm abroad. I mean, yeah, I'm not going okay. to be rude when I'm abroad. Totally. You know? I'm very open. I see travel as the experience to eat, you know, everywhere. I interviewed, actually, Chef Ferran Adria, who oh, has nice. El Bui. Yeah. I interviewed him about a year and a half ago uh, when he was closing El Bui and when he was reopening huh. tickets with his with his brother in Barcelona. And so I was served this incredible meal at Tickets, yeah. which is kind of, it's right, it's a little bit in, in, in a very intriguing neighborhood in Barcelona. And that, to me, was sort of an experience on a very different level, as you know. I mean, he, the mm-hmm. molecular cuisine, etc. Yeah. But I felt like, you know, if I was going to do After the Rat, that would be my second favorite. <laughs> uh, no, I will eat actually everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't love innards, you know. Right. Who does? But, but at least would... you know that you don't love innards. Right. You know, where other people right. just feel like, I just know without even trying. And that's, right. That's no, no, little... no, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's one of those things where I've, I've tasted them and, and I don't there prefer. we go. Yeah. Right. right. It would not be my last meal, let's put it that way. <laughs> All right, so what was your most nerve-wracking experience on the road, and how do you think other travelers could avoid it? I solo backpacked through India uh-huh. for four months. Yeah. And it's just interesting because now, in light of all the things that have been happening in India mm-hmm. and with women travelers, mm-hmm. you know, having the experiences, and there's been, they've said, I haven't looked at the statistics, but apparently the numbers have gone down drastically, of course, since all the things that have been happening in India. So I've been thinking back to this experience that I had in India. Yeah. Where I either I was solo backpacking, you know, I went have you been to India? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I was in, you know, I went I did I did the Jaisalmer and et cetera, but then I also did to Calcutta and I, yeah. I volunteered at Mother Teresa's oh, organization. Nice. Yeah. I did Goa, you know, all yeah. of it. But I remembered that one of the things that I remember feeling, you know, when you feel it when you arrive in India was like, oh my God, you just want to change it, right? Because there's it's the bureaucracy and the trains, yeah. right? And the trash. And this woman volunteer I met said you know, what happens is you arrive in India and you want to change it and, and India changes you, yeah. you know? And so I kind of kept that in back of my mind. But one of the first things she told me is she said, you know, she met me probably my first week there and there I was with my backpack and, you know, yeah. I was going to go and explore. Ready to and go. she said, you know, there's going to be some point where you're going to have to stand up and yell at the top of your lungs to protect your space yeah. and who you are. And I thought, oh, no, 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 no. See, I'm a very seasoned traveler, and I would never get to that point. Well, right. yeah. <laughs> it did. I had I was on a on a long, long train trip to Dharamsala, where the Dalai mm-hmm. Lama is mm-hmm. in exile, 22 hours, 
sitting in my seat, no one next to me, in the middle of the night, 3 a.m., I suddenly feel a hand on my leg <laughs> under my blanket. Really? I turn, I realize that someone has sat to me, is starting to do some groping, and I thought, oh, that's right, yelling. And I got up on the seat of the bus, and I yelled. You got the seat. <laughs> I love it. And the bus driver was like, Aah! to the side of the road and the funniest thing not funny but was that there was this row of women in the very back who I hadn't even actually quite noticed yeah. and who went bah, 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 running up the, the aisle of the bus hitting him the grouper until Aww. he ran off <laughs> but I bring it up because it was I was reminded of that with all the things that have been going on in India Yes. And I feel like sometimes it's as basic as standing up and yelling, you know? Yeah. Never thought I was going to be in that position. But when you bring up nerve-wracking, yeah. that's the, the, that's what I think of it. As a woman, as personal space, as wanting to be adventurous, which I am, yeah. and wanting to make sure that all women can be. Yeah. It was that It was that experience. It's interesting because I've heard this, and I just didn't think... I thought it was sensational. Right. And it, mm-hmm. But it's, it's legit. And it's fine. I wasn't hurt, and you weren't hurt. But, but in the moment, you're like, I feel very dirty, and this was defiling, and I, I can't believe that that these stories are true. But then, I would absolutely always go to India, though. It doesn't mean I right, could, exactly. You know, so it's like, okay, so this is this is the rule of India, and that's fine. Totally. And and in fact, you're right because for me, it actually happened early on in my four month trip. Yeah. And I remember, you know, there was that initial feeling. I remember when I first arrived in Delhi, I was staying with friends. I came on Air France from Paris where I was staying with my best friend. And I thought, maybe for the first time ever I may return. I actually may return. Like I actually contemplated it right when I first arrived because of the overwhelming nature. Return back to France. Yes. I remember thinking, what if I just didn't tell anyone and I returned? Yeah. And I thought, well, give it a week. And then, of course, it was four months. Yeah. And then the rest yeah. was, I was like, okay. Where were you in India? Were you... I went to Madhya Pradesh and I was wow. working at an ashram on an organic farm there. They were making stevia. Wow, really? Yeah. Yeah, it was like a a Gandhian ashram. But what's interesting is you're talking about the news. But, you know, India is so huge. Think about all the news coming out of our country and what people abroad must think about us, all gun-toting, killing children. And Yes, just stay smart when you travel, but also consider this stuff happens in your own country. You know? And not to mention, I feel like, you know, if we were going to look at completely, for me, it was one of those things where, oddly enough, because I was aware of my surroundings, I, in fact, India, to me, was, I felt perhaps the safest I'd ever felt. Mm -hmm. When I compared to, for example, being in a big city, you know, yeah. being, and, and when you start, and if you just look at statistically, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an incredible thing when you start looking at it that way. And mm-hmm. yes, huge amounts of press for very isolated incidences. Exactly. You know? And yeah. you, it can't be the overarching, you know, this is in all India, you know. Totally. It's like, no, this was one incident in that, you know, state. And then, you know, and, totally. and you know, going around the world, I was living in African tribes and all this first week back in New York when I let my guard down I had a you know a coat stolen my coat from Romania that I can't get back and lots of cash in the pocket and gloves stolen just in a pub because I let my guard down and it's like did you but I'm home now I'm home this isn't supposed to happen home right I agree. I think it, it's so funny mm-hmm. you say that. I can't tell you how many stories I've heard of friends. My dear friend who lives in Paris had actually just come back from Africa and was on the metro in Paris. 
thinking nothing of it. She had just yeah. been in Africa for four months. And you should be scared of Africa. And right. But not France. Right. And, yeah. and Paris. You know, Paris right. on, on their fairly spick and span metro and was um, pickpocketed. Yeah, totally. Within 24 hours of returning. Yeah. <laughs> a week for me back in New York. Wait, was this one, I'm just totally curious, was this one of those things where, you know, people stack up their coats in a corner? It was along the bottom of a, yeah, a bottom of the bar. We had coats all along. And when the bar starts getting more crowded, you get pushed a little bit away from your coat. And somebody took off with mine. And I went back for like two weeks. And finally, the bartender's like, listen, you're not getting your coat back. Just keep your guard up no matter where you are, because it's a smart thing to do. And by the way, within the women's community of travel writers, Mm -hmm. there was so much, I feel, saying exactly that, which I love. You know what I mean? Yeah. It felt like... it was almost like because a lot of the sort of the more generic press was like, oh my God, women traveling alone, da da da. And in fact, a lot of women travel was like, wait a moment, yeah, wait a moment, yeah, you know. And then really kind of like let, let's really put this in perspective. I got really fired up, yeah, you did? about the okay. the American woman in Turkey and right. uh, and it's and it's like why why is right. this a woman thing? Right, this is just a, a travel thing, and even like not even just a travel thing because again in America, think of all the things that happen here. Totally. So it's just a it's an unfortunate thing that totally I don't want to make light of it but let's just keep it all in perspective totally totally yeah hundred percent I love that and I love that we both kind of have that yeah yeah me too having done it right we've both traveled so that's love right exactly totally yeah so what passport stamp still eludes you Mm, yes I actually interestingly enough the country that I've been wanting to go to a lot recently is Greenland. Oh. So interestingly enough, I actually have that passport stamp because uh-huh. it's owned by Denmark. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a Denmark, Danish. <laughs> yeah. So, and I have it. You know, my father's from Jutland, and so my aunts and uncles live in Skagen, which is in the northernmost part of Jutland. But one of my cousins, her husband's family were sort of settlers in Greenland, oh, and they wow. were telegraph operators. So they actually were doing, yeah. And so I've often thought, you know, Greenland, and it, you know, also from a travel writer perspective, you always want to cover areas that are not very well covered. Yeah. And Greenland is a little bit like Antarctica. I mean, there's uh-huh. biplanes, you know, you get around. So that is all. Have you been? No, but oh, I really want right? to. Greenland and Iceland. I've yes. got to. Me yeah. too. Me too. Those are the two. Okay. So in fact, it was funny because I usually think I, I, I often have Iceland as my place that I want to go see. And then it's like, oh, Greenland, I think. Greenland. Yeah. yeah. So That's that would nice. be a passport stamp that I would love to have on. <laughs> Greenland. <laughs> What is your most cherished souvenir and why? My most cherished souvenir, not surprisingly, is connected to the imbibing of wine. Uh, and it's actually the porron, as it's called in Catalan, huh. which is, you've probably seen it, they either are leather or they're glass, but they uh-huh. have a long, thin spout, so you hold it yes. up. Yes. Oh. You hold it up really high, so it's like an arc of uh-huh. wine. And what I love is how it came to be. Essentially, it used to be farmers and peasants uh-huh. sitting around a table wanting to share one bottle of wine not having all the glasses and figuring let's figure out a way where it doesn't touch the lips that's right we hold it high and you pass it on down so i love yeah. it for that level and i have a series of them in glass and in leather oh, that's beautiful <laughs> yeah you know, anthony bourdain did a episode oh with yeah I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's him but okay because it's lovely and that's the actually that's the only way i know Really, what you're it's, talking about? Yeah. Totally. And it, it, interestingly, George Orwell, in his homage to Catalonia, has uh-huh. a really great section where he talks.
talks about huh. encountering the Porron and being delighted. Yeah. And by the way, it's very difficult to do, so I recommend... I was going to ask, did you get a lot of wine? Well, and I always... <laughs> <laughs> My suggestion when people want to try it out, I'm like, white wine first. Totally. <laughs> What's the most interesting custom or tradition you discovered abroad, and did you bring it back home? Mm. Because, you know, we grew up in Asia and Africa with my family, one of the things my parents always did was we always celebrated Catalan and Danish traditions, mm -hmm. no matter where we were in the world. So here we were, for example, in, you know, in tropical Cairo, and we were having this very Danish Christmas. We would dance yeah. around the tree, oh. and we always sing, all of us dance around the tree, and then we sing in Catalan, Danish, whatever was the native language, so Arabic or Filipino huh. or Tagalog. But one of my all-time favorites, and I've actually written about this, and it's not that well known, but one of the things that we've had in our houses from Spain is that in Catalan nativity scenes, okay, you have like, of course, the little thumb-sized Jesus, yeah. and you have Mary and Joseph and the wonderful animals, you know, but the Catalan humor, which is a little bit risque and naughty, always has in the background hiding a little man crouching Taking, taking a, a dump. A poopy. Yeah. I've seen this, yes. but I don't know where. And they're called Caganes, right? They're so called what? Cagane. C-A-G-A-N-E-R. Okay. And it literally means little shitter. You know? <laughs> so why? And so we have them in our house, and it's cute. We actually have and it's funny because you would think, right, that it would be sort of like painted. No, it's very real. It is a turt. Like, there's just no question about it. And they have everyone doing it. So the, the most common is a little peasant, right, yeah. with his little hat on. But then they have, you know, the Pope doing it. They have... Yeah, soccer players doing it. They have Kate Middleton doing it. I mean, the idea is that it's evolved. Huh. The one thing that we always have in our house is that. So anytime it'll it'll be, it's almost like you know you're celebrating festive season, and it's like yeah. there's a guy on it. So what does that represent? Just is it just a little humorous? Don't be so serious. I so, mean, what? Totally. There's okay. that, but I actually there's a Kagane museum, literally in Barcelona, huh. not very well known. And I interviewed the head of it, um, and I said, you know, I'm so fascinated because a lot of people don't know where yeah. it came about. What they most likely think is that it did represent in the 19th century when it came about that sort of the, the harvesting of the earth. Okay. So there was this idea that it sort of meant the harvesting of the earth, right? So, you know, you eat the bounty of the earth and then you reap yeah. it with your, you know? <laughs> but I think probably more likely that there, there's this sort of Catalan humor. Yeah. And it's always a little bit like, oh. Let's go against the status quo a little bit. You know I what I mean? I see that. I like yeah. that. And so that's why I always love because I love that it represents that. I love that mm -hmm. it takes this very pious scene, right? Yeah. And well, the best part is that in, in Barcelona, they have life-size of it. So in Barcelona, they'll have a life-size, you know, papier mache yeah. paper. Uh, and they'll have the cagonet in full size. They're hidden. That is, it's hidden. So you have to be like, oh. And of course, the little kids are like, oh. <laughs> you know? I really love this. I'm that, going to have I'm to so see I'm so glad you it. actually knew about it, too. Yes, <laughs> I, but I don't know where. I've seen it so weird. I'm like, what? <laughs> totally. It was great. It was probably just nativities around the world, some museum I've seen uh, that has that. Completely. Yeah. Because, it, because it's actually, it went from, and it went from, I think, Catalan is sort of being a little bit like, oh my gosh, yeah. I can't believe we have it, to yeah. embracing it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, this is wonderful. Yeah. What is your biggest piece of advice for aspiring travelers? You know, this is interesting because this is something that I actually will often bring up again in travel classes, but also when a lot of young writers write to me. Remember you were saying that a lot of people will write to you, looking yeah. at your website, wanting to get early advice. Yeah. And I always say, you know, the thing about travel writing is start small in the sense that start in your own backyard. As I've said before, mm -hmm. how much I believe in backyard travel, I feel that you can start 
right in your own backyard yeah. and you can begin doing that kind of a writing and whether that means you know a weekend trip somewhere mm-hmm. or whether again it means you know going to Spanish Harlem you know yeah. and deciding to spend sort of an evening there or yeah. to me that's probably the best advice because i feel that for a lot of new writers it can seem like a very big mountain to climb yeah. to do the travel writing like i mm-hmm. must go on this you know this big trip that changes mm-hmm. my life not at all not at all yeah. i feel like you can start by stepping out your front door and it can be one subway right away i love that because yeah. i do hear that a lot as i would love to be a travel writer someday when i have yeah a grand adventure like, right no you don't have to wait yeah. for this grand adventure start right now totally yeah totally and especially from the writing part because i feel that when you go and you have an experience like that because it just changes your perspective mm-hmm. that's enough to spark great writing yeah like it, it, it like it doesn't have to be this you know right exactly you don't have to have gone whitewater rafting for right. example in tibet or wherever right. I mean, the idea being that it can be something yeah it can be it can be the subway right away and in fact some of the best writing comes out of that right I, Agreed. Yeah. It's something that you can actually really understand and relate to right in your backyard, you know, and totally. tell from your unique perspective of, I come from here and, and I see things in this way from here. This is my land, you know? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I exactly. like that. Hmm. And yeah, and I feel like also when people are just initially starting out, there's also this idea that, you know, anything that you write, travel writing, has to maybe sort of conquer these these grand themes mm-hmm. and i feel like no it's actually in these very small specific details yeah the true story comes out you yeah. know and i feel like it can it, it can take away a lot of the anxiety that i feel like writers can initially feel when they're going to become travel writers exactly you know? yeah exactly oh, that's lovely so the last question is what's the most profound lesson you've learned around the world well it's connected to what i was saying before which it sounds like i said esoteric and it sounds very spiritual but i do feel that travel is the journey within mm-hmm. the thing that i feel that's very important is that there's very few things in life that you can do that bring you back to feeling like a newborn yes and by that i mean like the the physical having to count new money that's new colors and new yeah. denominations the idea that every night you have to find a roof over your head this very primitive thing right yeah. you need a bed and you need a roof to to con- you know to cover you from the elements and then there's the language right yeah. you're like you're learning it tentatively you're trying to hear someone else it's bewildering when you don't know any of it it's there's few things in life that bring you back to what i call newborn status yeah. and so to me it's kind of this idea like skip therapy and take a trip it's like if you need to have this moment of recalibration in life i feel that there's there's nothing quite as powerful as a trip uh-huh. simply because of the change of perspective absolutely i don't remember if i was telling you this earlier i was talking about this today yes in reference to my trip about i i thought i knew myself oh yeah you okay. know before i took my my year abroad and i absolutely did not and i became just this force to be reckoned with when i came back from my trip i was just so me like <gasps> so you know in every sense and it was so liberating and and self-empowering and i'm not fear-based anymore but what we're talking about here is that vulnerability and getting past that and you know it, it was hard it was a hard year a hard lesson that. to push through that okay. but i would never miss it <gasps> totally. ever never miss it. i would never go back to the naivety i had before you know and you feel so you, you what do you feel like you gained a a um a fearlessness a, a fearlessness i i mean I, you could plunk me anywhere 
anywhere in this world, and, and I would be okay. Right. And, you know, I would adapt, and I would come out stronger. <gasps> I just... and. What, what that's just profound isn't right. it that, to Completely. know that about yourself yep i agree so i i mean it's so hard when you're learning that about yourself and you wonder sometimes what am i doing and why did i sign up for this this sucks totally right totally but then after that's ingrained in you wow i would never go back to the way i was before and but then it's also coming back and where do, where do I fit now? <laughs> I'm a different person. And yeah, but incredible. Just people have to experience, don't they? they oh, you can't but, explain it, you know. You and I'm, yeah. No, I completely agree. Yeah. And, and that idea, I love what you're saying about the fact that you can be plunked down anywhere. Anywhere. And adapt. Yeah. Because I think that's probably, that's another thing that's so critical is that mm. you do, you, you find yourself adapting. Well, obviously, Annalisa and I could chat all day about travel, but we have to unfortunately wrap up for now. So, Annalisa, my friend, we'll just have to have another conversation in the future after your new book comes out. So make sure to keep an eye out for that on her website, www.annalisasorensen.com, and her blog, traveltransforms.com, for more information about her new video series. And if she's inspired you to pick up the craft of travel writing, you can join one of her courses at www.mediabistro.com. And until next time, get out there and set the world on fire.